one of my friends said to me, what do these things say about you as an African-American artist? And I said, well, what they say is, I'm not an African-American artist, I'm an artist. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks with Say Adams about how his days writing graffiti led to a major career as a designer for hip-hop acts and as an artist. I have always been an artist my whole life. I have never wanted to do anything else, and so everything was about how do you get better. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsors, then her interview with Say Adams. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? If hip-hop is the soundtrack of America, the visual language of hip-hop, rooted in graffiti and wall murals, also saturates the culture. One big reason for that is Say Adams. He started in New York's downtown graffiti movement of the 1970s and 80s and came of age along with Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring. He was the founding creative director for Def Jam Recordings, and he created the visual identities for the likes of the Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, and Notorious B.I.G. He's also worked on advertising campaigns for HBO, Nike, and more. 
Over the years, he has put together an extraordinary body of work that explores brands, pop culture, race, and gender. Say Adams, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me. Say, is it true that as a young artist, you used to paint T-shirts and hats at bar mitzvahs? Yeah, I'm really impressed that you <laughs> found that. Uh, yeah, so what happened was in the early 80s, like maybe 1981, a woman named Joyce Tobin was representing me as a young graffiti artist when I was transitioning to becoming a fine artist and a painter after my graffiti career was ending. And her big idea was there are a lot of young kids that my children are friends with that would love to have your artwork at their you know, bar mitzvahs. And so she, through a lot of her girlfriends at the time, got me commissions to do murals and... You know, I played a lot of bar mitzvahs. <laughs> it, it was pretty cool. Now, I went to a lot of bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs as I was growing up on Long Island. And I have to say, I never, ever had a spray-painted T-shirt or hat by, say, Adams. I was definitely in the wrong neighborhood. Well, I definitely did a lot of them in Great Neck. <laughs> there you have it. I, I was this close. Well, you were born in Jamaica, Queens, to right. a family you've described as middle class. What did your parents do? Well, um, actually, I was born in Harlem, and then we moved to Queens. And, you know, my, my dad was a, a butcher and my mom was a nurse. And living in Queens was a million miles away from Manhattan. And it was just, a you know, a, a really simple, quiet neighborhood. And it felt like we were just so far away from any real action. How has being a native New Yorker influenced you, or do you feel like you're not a native New Yorker, given that Queens was so far away from oh, Manhattan? Oh, no, 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 definitely. I mean, New York is in my blood through and through. And, and certainly by the time I'm a teenager and I'm going to Times Square on 42nd Street and seeing like three karate flicks for, you know, like seven bucks or whatever it is, that was a million miles away from where I came from. And I am a New Yorker. I mean, those are the things that inform everything I do. You know, I, I was just telling somebody, seeing uh, Keith Haring's artwork on a spectacular billboard along with my friend Jane Dixon way back then seemed like the pinnacle of success. And I just thought, wow, they're in Times Square. And and so for me, everything that I do informs that that stereotypical idea of what New York means. I remember those billboards as well. And yes, I, I agree with you. That was and still is in many ways the epitome of success. Remember the great poster shops on Broadway in the high 40s, 46th, 47th, sure. 48th? That was the only place that I could get really good Roger Dean posters. Yeah. I don't know if you remember those from sure. the band. Yes. Yeah, sure. You loved comic books. You, I know you were also incredibly fond of Mad Magazine artist Jack Davis. And oh, yeah. I'd understand you'd spent hours copying his work in your bedroom. Yeah. He, he was the, the blueprint for me because, you know, I loved his illustrations. They were really whimsical. He did a lot of TV Guide covers. And that was the thing that informed everything everything that I wanted to do. Back then, if, if I could have become a Jack Davis clone, I would have been very happy. And strangely enough, 
very recently, uh, last year at an art fair, I had the pleasure of meeting Joe Namath, and the first thing I said to him was, I remember that cover of TV Guide that you were on, that Jack Davis drew this illustration. And, you know, he smiled and looked at me, and I know he must have been thinking, well, what is this guy talking about? You know, he's like, you know, he's a lot older now, and, you know, he's Broadway Joe, and the first thing I'm talking about is some little cartoon, but that's the image that stays in my head, and... It just sort of never leaves me. Like, I'm a little kid when I start thinking about that. You also had a special appreciation for Andy Warhol and have also recalled trying to emulate his work. What work were you looking to emulate most? The thing about Andy that I love so much is that everything that he did felt really accessible. It it was within your reach. You didn't feel like... You needed an Ivy League education to understand what he was doing. Certainly, you can add this, you know, idea on top of whatever he was doing, or you could read into it as much as you want. But to the average Joe that's looking at a soup can, if if you just take away just what's on the surface, in most cases, that was good enough for him, and therefore, you know, it was good enough for me. But Andy was just one of those guys. He really showed everyone the way. What did you want to be at that time in your life? Were you thinking that you wanted to be an artist? Yeah. I mean, I'd been an artist my whole life. So, you know, from as far back as five or six, I was representing my school in art competitions. And I just didn't know any other thing that interested me the way art did. And that's why, you know, I referenced Jack Davis and comic book art because those were the things that were accessible to me at the time. Even though I would go on class trips to museums and things like that, that work didn't resonate with me in the same way as comic book art. And and so my, my first idea was that I wanted to be an artist, not really even understanding what that means, but I would certainly find out you know, by the time I became a teenager. You also had a vast musical education and listened to everyone from Aretha Franklin to Elton John. But I also understand you liked Southern rock, in particular Leonard Skinner. Yeah. Um, So you had range. Well, I come from an era before radio was segregated when it was just AM radio. And so they would play everything from Elton John to, you know, Al Green. They would play soul. They would play rock and roll, a little bit of blues and R&B. And so by the time I'm a teenager and I'm going to neighborhoods like Astoria and Greenpoint where I had friends who were white that were graffiti artists, they were listening to rock and roll. And so I was listening to rock and roll. And and I went to Jamaica High School and there was two cliques. You were either in the black clique or you were in the white clique. And because I was an artist, I sort of bounced back and forth between the two. And, And so this was a time when everybody was painting denim jackets and they cut off the sleeves and you know they do these beautiful acrylic album cover designs from all of the iconic albums you know whether it's Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or the Who or what have you and so those were my friends and the music that they listened to was music that I started listening to and I didn't really think that I had to listen to one thing or another even though In my household, my sisters sort of controlled the radio. So whatever they were listening to, I was listening to. So I got an education about the early days of soul and all of, you know, the music that went along with that and soul train and everything. 
And so I ended up living in both those worlds. You began writing graffiti when you were young. Some sources say as a teenager, others as early as grade school. So when did you first become aware of graffiti and when did you start writing it? Probably in junior high school, early to mid-70s. But I didn't, quote-unquote, turn professional until I was able to really leave the house. So at that point, I'm still just tagging in the neighborhood, which to me, looking back, wasn't quite as big of a deal as it was when I started to travel to the Bronx. And then I started to see all these amazing top-to-bottoms and whole cars that were really beautiful. And that was when I sort of really caught the bug that I wanted to really take it to the next level. And that meant sneaking out at night, and it meant figuring out how I was going to get paint and materials and how I was not going to get caught by my parents. And so that's, in my mind, when I turned professional and really took it to the next stage. I read that when you were first mesmerized by graffiti, it then wouldn't leave you alone. And I, I love that quote, the sort of passion of yeah. not ever being able to get away from it. In my mind, it was everywhere because, you know, the other thing is I'm a teenager. I don't have any money. I, I, you know, I was never really, you know, savvy when it came to, like, talking to girls and things like that. So I, I wasn't going out on any dates. I was a, you know, somewhat decent athlete, but even those things sort of cost money if you couldn't afford a baseball glove, you know. So graffiti was one of those things that, you know, it sort of didn't cost anything. It was everywhere. And because I was an artist, I could do everything in my room. So I would just spend a lot of time, you know, in a lot of ways, this is sort of a contemporary definition of a nerd by these, you know, in these times. But a lot of what I did was just sort of study the craft in my room before I was able to go outside. Now, did that make your parents angry? I read one account where they got angry at you for for doing this. Sure, I mean, all, all alone in your room. Sure, you know what what spray paint smells like, and and magic markers, and you know, just imagine somebody playing with turpentine all day in their bedroom. You're going to know <laughs> what they're doing. And it was a problem for sure. I mean, we would, you know, my brothers and I, we would tag the dressers, the the back of our door. And it was, you know, the three of us and we shared one room. So it wasn't a lot of real estate to begin with. But, you know, in, in some way, I guess they also knew where we were. And so, you know, kids are running around and, they're, you know, drinking at a young age or smoking cigarettes or experimenting with, you know, pills and drugs or whatever it was. My thing was always ink and magic markers and spray paint. So in, in retrospect, I guess my folks, you know, got off pretty easy. Do you remember the first graffiti you put up? Not really. It, it, everything that I remember was sort of in my room. I don't really have a a vivid memory of when I sort of went out with a paint can and really tried to make my mark because, you know, I had two other, well, I still have two other brothers and we had a small little graffiti clique and whatever I did in those early days is sort of erased in my memory. Why? Because... It was just so bad, just period. I mean, that's the only way I could describe it, just bad. Now, I searched long and hard to try to track down your graffiti alias of yesteryear, and I think I may have come across it 
Was it top-notch? No. My first name is Isaac, and my last name is Adams, and my middle name is Cedric. And so my graffiti name, Say, is an abbreviation for Cedric. So my parents used to call me Seti, which was short for Cedric. And I wanted to sort of shorten that even more. And so I saw this baseball player at the time named Ron Say, and his name is spelled C-E-Y. And I thought that was a really cool name. And I thought, I'm going to adopt that name. And I'm a junior, so I share my name with my dad. And I've always been somebody that doesn't believe in, you know, sharing an identity. So I always thought, you know, I'm my own individual. I, you know, I still think it's sort of strange that somebody could have the the balls to like look at you as a baby and think, oh, I'm so great. I want to name you after myself. (laughs) (laughs) And then what about Say City? Well, City was like a graffiti crew, so everybody had little crews. And so I just came up with that because I thought it looked good next to Say, and it, it stood for Children Invading the Yard, which was the subway yard. And that's where that comes from. Oh, that's nice. Acronym. Um, after starting with tags, you stepped up to larger and larger pieces and then hit the subway. And that then, that was the Holy Grail. Sure. You know, looking back now, it all seems so dangerous. It's kind of funny because, you know, I have a a fear of heights and I spend so much time trying to conquer that when I'm painting murals today. And back then, there were these elevated train tracks. You know, they still have them, obviously, in the Bronx, but now there's a metal grate there when, you know, the the workmen walk on the catwalk. But in the old days, there were these, like, two-by-fours. And because of weather and rain and snow and all that, they would really be weathered. And when we would get chased by workers, you'd have to run on those things, not even walk. And this is, you know, whatever it is, like 100 feet in the air, very scary. And I still marvel at the courage that I mustered up to be able to do that. Take us back to what it was like on the streets back then. Wow. Were, the, were the cops after you a lot? Were yeah, they? Yeah. You know, I, I was very fortunate that I never got arrested. And, and you know, famously, my parents' line, and this is mostly my mom, because my dad just, he didn't even want to look at us. But my mom was like, if you ever get caught, don't call here. And that really? was, that, yeah, <laughs> that was the, the, you know, the one bit of advice she gave me. And so, you know, my goal was always to not be the slowest one in my little crew. But back then it was, it was the city was, was a rougher and tougher place. But I also think that it was a simpler time and things like graffiti weren't, considered a huge crime the way it is today. You know, today they want to take your parents' house away and there's all these big fines. And back then, you know, there were so many things you had to do. Like, number one, you had to steal all your materials and that required a lot of craftsmanship and and being clever. How did you do it? Well, you send, you know, one friend in the store first and he goes left and then the security guard follows him and then you go in and you go right. You go to the paint rack and you do whatever you have to do and then you walk out and he's basically just keeping the security guard busy spinning around and then you leave and you go to the next store and then, you, you know, you switch coats or whatever. You know, and it was, there was an art form to it for sure. And we would have to do things like, 
somebody would craft a key from the transit system and then we would make copies of it and then we could get into the door as opposed to like having to hop the turnstile because that would draw attention to you and then they'd scream your name on the loudspeaker and you know whoever was on duty you already got a problem before your you know evening even starts so there was all of these things and these are all things that other people sort of thought of so when you are you know just starting out in graffiti there's already a blueprint to follow in terms of how you do all these things and everybody would share this information so it was sort of common knowledge how you did things like you know you would apprentice <laughs> under somebody a little bit more skillful until you learned and it's just the way it was was it fun sure but for me it was always about a means to an end. It was always, okay, this is what I have to do in order to get this work up on the train. And all of that other stuff was sort of a byproduct of what you had to do. And so it wasn't like I got a rush out of stealing paint. It was more like, this is what I need. And if I got to go through this the same way, I have to figure out how I'm going to will myself to be, you know, 100 feet in the air. Just do it. And it's really kind of crazy when you think back to all of the nutty stuff that we did as kids just in the name of painting your name on the side of a train to make your mark. But, you know, that was what we had to do in order to let people know that we are here and we exist. In 1978, you realized your artistic potential when you were doing a painting based on Sheik's album, Risqué. In, in what way? You're looking with big eyebrows, so now I'm wondering if I have my research wrong. But. No, you, you have it right, but, you know, I, like, you know, I, I don't even remember ever talking about this. Like, I'm like, I'm just stunned that you dug that deep because you really <laughs> are like, you, you just hit a nerve with that one. Oh, okay. It's really fascinating because everything that's happening in my life now is so amazing to me when I think about being that little kid. Like, just recently I did a whole installation at the new Levi's flagship store in Times Square. And now Rogers and Chic were, you know, one of the performing bands. And they wow. had this idea that they wanted all of these New York icons and myself being one of them. And when I think back that far to that first record, and that was really one of the things that inspired me. And I was in my bedroom, and I can remember doing that painting. And it, it said risque, and it was in all these beautiful colors. And all of the characters were Jack Davis characters that I, I pulled from magazines. And my there's a, a photograph of my little brother holding the painting, and I'm taking the picture. And... and the, you know, I've done a lot of amazing work in my lifetime, but that work still rivals anything I've done present day. It was really good even back then. So what gave you the sense at that point that you wanted to consider transitioning into a fine artist? Being a graffiti artist sort of ran its course, and it was always about getting to another place. It wasn't like I was interested in being the king of a line or bombing more trains than anybody else. It was always like, this is a vehicle to take me someplace else. And because I was always 
afraid of what I was doing, if you will. Like, you know, there was also confrontation with other writers. Like, you go into a tunnel and you'd have to make sure that you don't get jumped by a rival graffiti gang. You got to make sure that you don't get chased by dogs. You got to make sure that you don't get electrocuted. All of these things, like, that I wanted nothing to do with. All I wanted was the painting part of it. So the minute I had an opportunity to transition... I'm gone. (laughs) What made you decide to apply to the School of Visual Arts? Well, I just wanted to learn how to perfect my craft. And the thing about me is, like, I have always been an artist my whole life. I have never wanted to do anything else. And so everything was about how do you get better? How do you learn how to do this? How do you take what you've learned and, and move it forward? And, you know, strangely enough, my son is born in 1984, and I'm sort of immediately at that point transitioning out of graffiti because now I, I really have to get serious. I have to earn a living. And, and you know, school just wasn't for me at that point. I had a lot of friends that were rebels. And anything that had to do with this sort of systematic way of living was something that we weren't interested in. And, and so... Everything was about doing it my way or the highway. You, at that point, or shortly thereafter, met Joyce Tobin. Um, She is the person you mentioned before who recruited you to do the bar mitzvah swag. Um, You said she changed your life. Sure. In, In what way? You know, I'm 18 or 19, and this is the early 80s, and... She showed me love and attention that no other adult had done up to that point except my parents. I saw an ad in the paper for her graffiti gallery. And, you know, my my head all but exploded. There's this woman holding a canvas of graffiti in the newspaper. And I was like, I want in whatever I have to do. And I already had all these paintings that I made in my bedroom. So I literally took them, wrapped them up in, you know, garbage bags, hopped on the subway, went down to the West Village to this gallery, no appointment, just, you know, knock on the door, here I am. And the first thing I thought of was, you know, I want to be a part of this, but I didn't really understand what it was. I just knew she was a vehicle to help me get to where I was going. And the first thing she says to me is, are these pieces for sale? And that didn't even register in my head, like, oh, right, sale, money. And so I immediately said yes. And because I I think I was one of the more approachable people that she had dealt with up to that point, she immediately signed me to the gallery and was representing me right after that day, maybe even that very same day. And my career started right there. Up until that point, I was painting storefront gates and doing car washes and little things like that and making a you know a couple of bucks here or there you know and I'm splitting that with you know whoever else is in my little crew or team and it was small time compared to having somebody represent me at a, a gallery 
at this point, you become friends with Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring, and you've said this about the experience. In the 80s, these were simply my friends at the time. The whole world wasn't shining a spotlight on what we were doing. We were, first and foremost, making art for ourselves as teenagers. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did you first become friends with Basquiat and Haring? Well, you know, they are a part of a larger collective, and... You know, for all intents and purposes, they might as well have been in a band Mm -hmm. because you had dozens of graffiti artists that were there and then other people that were more traditional painters. And we all hung out downtown because downtown was where the music was. Downtown was where the energy was. And also downtown was where the people that were like-minded hung out. And so we all congregated to this place. And these are also people that were interested in what I was doing. I had an opportunity to you know, design for fashion shows. Pat Field was, um, you know, a Patricia early supporter Field, yeah, of course. at that point. And these were adults that didn't dismiss what we were doing. And, you know, I meet Keith, and he could not be more friendly. He knows my name. He knows my work. And, you know, he was not a superstar at that point. He was just starting out. Granted, he had enough resources to have his own studio, and so that ended up being sort of a headquarters. And if you look at any of those early photographs, that's why there's so many tags there, because that was a center or a clubhouse for everybody, a a point where you could stop, you could rest, you could go to the bathroom, like whatever it was. But by no means was he any different than anybody else. He was a working artist like I was a working artist. If I was doing a show, he would show up. And, you know, and it wasn't like all the attention in the room would shift to him like he was Kanye West, you know, at that time. But he was an amazing supporter. Patty Astor was another person that ran the fun gallery. She did as much as she could do to nurture all of the talent that was in that area. She gave Keith one of his first shows. She gave Jean-Michel one of his first shows. And so you had people like that in the downtown community that were really supportive. And for me, I was home. That was it. I was done with Queens up to that point. Jean-Michel and Keith introduced you to Andy Warhol, and I understand he was very kind with his time and his advice for you. What was the best piece of advice he gave you? Well, you know, with, with Andy... It wasn't so much what he said. It was more the way he carried himself. A lot of the things that have been written about him paint him in these really strange and and wild lights. But for me, the thing that I loved the most about him is that we would have a conversation about art. And, you know, he was really a man of few words. He'd say a few things and you'd sort of have to decipher what he's talking about. But for me... Just being in his presence was a lot. And the fact that if he was in the room, nobody was paying any more attention to him than they were Keith, than they were Jean or even myself. And he would say to me, hey, you know, we're all going to go, you know, to Mr. Charles, do you want to come along? And, you know, and I'd ask Keith, I was like, you know, and he's like, he says, yeah, go, it'll be okay. And I says, oh, I don't have any money. He goes, don't worry, Andy always takes care of everything. And I was like, you know, that's all I need to hear. <laughs> and that was huge because he was somebody that I looked up to, you know, years ago. And then now all of a sudden I'm hanging out with him and and. I'm I'm just in front of him all the time. And, you know, I'm still really young at the time, and I'm really impressionable. But Keith made it 
all better because I saw that he was navigating those waters and he just sort of didn't pay celebrity any mind at all. And so it made me much more comfortable when I was in the room with people like that. And so you know, by the time I start meeting you know, major celebrities when I'm hanging out with the Beastie Boys in 86, 87, I'd had that education from being around Andy and, and Keith and, you know, in those, you know, settings where you're around all these rich and famous people. And it just didn't make me feel like they were any better than myself. Talk about how Danceteria impacted this next chapter of your career. I understand that some people helped you get in. They knew your graffiti work. You'd wanted to get in. You were standing online. You're smiling, so I think I might have hit on a good story. Well, well I'm smiling because y- your listeners may not know where, where the studio is located. But, oh, Danceteria. If they don't know Danceteria, I suggest they Google it because yeah. that was a training ground and a university for so many New Yorkers yeah. at the time, myself included. And it was... To me, it was the center of the universe. You know, when I talk about downtown being home, Danceteria was like... Mecca. Yeah. (laughs) It it was this this amazing creative hub where all of the, the alternative music that I loved was happening there. Those people were performing there. All the artists congregated there. And so... I, I remember hearing about it, and I, I, I found out what the address was, and I, I go down there, and, you know, I'm really fearful I'm going to go up to the doorman and get rejected, so I'm sort of holding back. And I'm a few doors away, and the Beastie Boys are coming, and they knew me from graffiti circles, and, you know, they would sort of experimenting with, with graffiti and tagging and things, but certainly nothing serious. And they approached me and, you know, we started talking and they said, hey, you know, we're going to the club. And I says, oh, I want to go into it, but I don't know the doorman. And he goes, oh, he's friends with us. Come in with us. You know, and they're young at the time. Each one of the guys is like a couple of years younger than me. And so we get waltzed in and just getting past that velvet rope. Like, you know, I knew from the Studio 54 days what that meant. But... I became a regular, and within a week, the doorman knew me at Danceteria. And, you know, that's where I met people like Patricia Fields and Madonna and and, and David Byrne and all of these other folks. But, you know, again, I'm really young, and I'm trying to figure out how these things are going to help my initiative and, and help me to get to where I'm going. Because at the end of the day... I'm still selling my services as an artist and I'm trying to figure out how these things are going to catapult me forward. And unlike a lot of my friends, I I didn't drink or do drugs. And so those things weren't a plus for me. Like, so if somebody was in a corner doing something, I wasn't excited about that. I just wanted to understand who's buying art in this place or, you know, how do I get commissioned to do something because that was the thing that was really important to me. The Beastie Boys then invite you to create their logo for the band. Suddenly you're a designer. You had no formal training. You didn't go to design school. How did you go about creating a logo for the first time? I mean, that's a pretty big commission for somebody that's not a designer. I I agree. And and 
I didn't really even understand. Like everything I knew about graphic design was informed by Andy Warhol. Not a bad teacher, say. <laughs> no, no. But the, but that was that was where I got my education, and so. I had always been somebody that was a fan of clean lines and and bold typography. So that part I understood, just, you know, visuals. Like in graffiti, for me, everything was about legibility. I, I cared about people being able to see things from really far away. That was always the way that I approached any sort of design problem. And so the guys approached me about doing this logo, and this is 1982 for a 1983 release of Cookie Puss. And I designed this logo, and and we really became fast friends right at that moment. I honestly don't even have a memory of anything after those first couple of days because the minute we meet each other, and all of a sudden you're just joined at the hip, and everything else is a blur. You essentially became an unofficial fourth Beastie yeah, Boy. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell people all the time that I have a license to ill tour laminate when we did our, our first world tour and all the passes are numbered. So the first three passes go to the three guys in the band. Number four went to their road manager and number five was me. But um, to answer your question, working with them was a lot of fun and it was very easy because there was nobody you had to answer to besides the guys in the band. And so when we were doing a lot of the early graphics, it was myself and Adam Horvitz, and we would go to what at the time was Kinko's, and they used to have one on H Street. And we would, you know, I would design things with a, a T-square, a Sharpie, a ruler, and an X-Acto knife, and that was my design studio. And we would make flyers like, you know, a lot of bands did back then, and... You Cake know, posters, as we yeah, call them, right? Yeah, you gang four of them up on an eight and a half by 11 sheet, and you know, you, you cut it with an exacto knife two times, and you got four flyers. And that's what we did. And then things sort of, you know, were that way for a very long time until, you know, the, the band got professional management, and then things sort of moved to the next level. You met Russell Simmons in 1983 via a photographer who was scouting locations for Run DMC's debut album. And he essentially discovered, in quotes, discovered you as you were painting a mural on yeah. a handball court. Yeah. Um, I believe you were still a student at that point. Yeah. And the photographer suggested you go see Russell Simmons. And you did. And he began hiring you to design these flyers and posters an office mural, and backdrops for shows. And did you also spray paint backdrops in that office as well? Yeah, I, I did. Um, it's really bad for your lungs. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good <laughs> thing I stopped early. But, um, you know, I, I meet Russell, and, you know, there, there's no big, grand speech about what he is going to do for my career. It's more like, oh, you draw, you're an artist, here, do this. You know, there's not a lot of discussion about fees and salaries and, and licensing. And I didn't have any competition. There was nobody else that wanted to do what I was doing. So I had a lane all to myself. It's not like I was a music producer or I was a, a songwriter or wanted to be a, a rapper or a performer or a dancer. 
all I wanted to do was art and design. So they were like, okay, you're here, do it. And there was no creative brief or any direction. I sort of just had to figure it out based on the situation. And little by little, I, I learned what I was doing. And, you know, I had to teach myself how to do cut and paste design. I, I went and bought books and you learn how to draw blue lines and you learn what a safety is and a bleed and trim and all of it. And I figured it out, trial by fire. In 1984, Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin formally launched Def Jam Records, and you became their chief creative director. Yeah. You didn't even know what an art director was. No. <laughs> it's incredible. I, you know, I, I didn't have any experience managing talent, working with, with artists or illustrators, any of it. But neither did they when it came to managing, you know, artists at a record label. We all learned together. And I sort of had nothing to go back to because I knew where I'd come from. So to me, it was an opportunity to succeed, but it didn't look like a big opportunity. It was just more like, oh, okay, this is better than getting chased by cops. This is better than breathing in spray paint fumes. Okay, yeah, I, I think I can do this. And because I had a graphic sensibility, the work that I did translated very easily to other media. So when I started doing these giant backdrops, and so, for example, Run DMC's first tour backdrop I painted when they went out on the King of Rock tour. And I had a friend that lived on Broadway in Lafayette, and he had a giant loft. And as you know, those ceilings are like 30 feet high, and they're huge. And so... I would go to Pearl Paint down on Canal Street, and they, they sold these giant rolls of canvas for a couple of hundred bucks, and me and my little brother would go there and I would you know buy these things, and I would walk it from Canal Street to Broadway and Houston and carry it up the stairs in his building because it wouldn't fit in the elevator. And he was kind enough to let me nail this thing into the wall and that was a space that was big enough for me to do something 40 feet by 30 feet. And I just, you know, used the projector and learned how to do blue lines and project the illustration and use an airbrush. And that was how I did it. In 1986, you and Steve Carr founded The Drawing Board, which was Def Jam's in-house design team. And you worked with Run DMC, LL Cool J, Mary J. Blige, Public Enemy, Jay-Z, Stevie Wonder... In talking about the drawing board, you've said that the goal was to create a platform for visual artists to express themselves in a way that was different than working in an art department for a record company. And so I want to know, in what way? Well, first and foremost, we were making art, for the most part, African-American artists that had a different sensibility than, than R&B. In my mind, and I you know, want to choose my words carefully because I don't want anybody to be offended. That was a little stiff compared to what hip-hop was. I guess you, you could say that, yeah. So the idea was that this was black rebel music. This was music that had real energy that was from the street and it was raw. And I just knew that it was really important for us to get it right because the music depended on it. The music had already established itself as being really powerful. So now I have to mirror that with some sort of visual or graphic. And because I grew up in graffiti, 
when I would meet the artists, I looked just like them. So they understood that I was going to have their best interests in mind when I was making design. You know, to give you an example, at the time, CBS and Columbia are distributing Def Jam's records. And they were, you know, doing Barbara Streisand and Billy Joel and, and big pop acts. And the people that worked in the art department were these, you know, really stiff guys with plaid jackets on with the patches on the sleeves and, you know, thick corduroy pants and penny loafers. And, you know, they didn't understand anything about the music that, you know, we were making downtown, nor did they care. So when it came to art direction, they approached everything the same way. And so by the time I come along and I am an art director, they just laughed at me because they didn't have any appreciation for the music. So they definitely didn't have any appreciation when it came to the art. And they had no interest in educating me about how to be a professional designer or art director or even creative director. They just dismissed me. But the one thing that they sort of didn't understand was that the music was going to take over the whole business. And within a few you know, short years, every single one of those guys got fired. And then I was the guy in charge. And then I could bring my team in that had a strong sensibility for the music that we were you know, designing for. Our careers very briefly overlapped in the early 90s at Hot 97. <laughs> and um, it was, I believe, 1992 or 93, you designed the logo when the station evolved from a dance music radio station to the hip-hop radio station it is today. I worked on the repositioning of the station with Rocco Macri and Judy Ellis and helped launch the new ads that helped promote the new format. Um, I have some of the old creative here. You mean those ads with Dr. Dre and Ed Lover <laughs> yes. with the frying pan? Yes, I still have that frying pan in my kitchen, by the way. You see um, how good my memory yes, is yes, of that Yes, yes, you tree. do. So, so this was, I, I'm, I'm showing this in the studio so my listeners are going to be sort of, they're at a disadvantage, but that was the original logo. It was a red background yeah. and a black logo with a big burst in the uh, oaf and uh -huh. hot. And then you designed this scratchy yeah. logo. And, and I'll make sure that these are available for good. other listeners to see. <laughs> And then we had this with uh, the mighty Jay-Z. Mm -hmm. Now, you wow. lived like down, you lived a couple of doors down from Jay-Z yeah. in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, yeah. well, we, we were neighbors in the same building at okay. 560 State Street. I, I love that Here, you, you had have, that. Yeah, this, this I went is... through my archives looking for this stuff. Wow. So, But isn't it amazing to think when we launched Han 87, so it was you, it was Judy, it was Rocco, it was me, we were working on this new radio station, everybody thought it was going to fail. Yeah. Everybody was like, yeah. who's going to listen to a hip-hop radio station? Yeah. And, you know, it became one of the most successful radio launches of all yeah. time. Well, the, the good thing about this for me was that this was just a, a one-off commission, you know, to design the, this logo. It, it was a project. I, you know, I never really thought much about how big it was going to be because at that time, I'm already working with the biggest artists in right. hip-hop. So my idea is, okay, this is just another job. And it was sort of handed to me. I didn't have to audition. I just you know, literally walked across the street because Def Jam was right down the block from Hot 97. And 
I, I found out that red was the number one color in advertising, and, and I knew black works with anything, and so that was where I got the color palette. So for me, it was it was very simple. Like, the thing that was sort of a little tricky was when I started to see it in all of these places and it started to really take on, you know, th- this really powerful meaning. And I remember seeing a, a semi-tractor trailer you know, with the logo along, you know, on the side. And I just thought, wow, that was up to that point, probably the only thing I'd, I'd seen short of a billboard where my artwork was huge. And, you know, and this thing would show up at block parties and just be taking up every bit of real estate on the sidewalk and, you know, in the street rather. And I just thought, wow, that is really cool. That, that is my vision. And that really ushered in an entire look for an yeah. entire decade yeah. of everything hip-hop was supposed to look yeah. like. Yeah. And I remember before you were commissioned to do the logo, Rocco and Judy and Tracy all saying, oh, well, there's only one person that can do this logo. It's Say Adams. And everybody was very nervous that you weren't going to want to do it because yeah. there wasn't a lot of money yeah. there. But it really did create the visual vernacular yeah. of the time. And you know what's funny, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, Shortly after that, I got a call from WBLS, and they wanted me to do a rebranding of their logo. I wonder what it was about Hot 97 that made it take off like a rocket ship, whereas WBLS, when they did their rebrand, it just didn't click. And and I I was dabbling with um, writing slogans at the time, and so I pitched this idea for wider, bigger, longer, stronger— And I said, you know, imagine how great that's going to look. And they obviously thought it was a little bit phallic. But I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's like it would look so amazing. You know, you'd have the W and then you'd have the B and then the L and the S. And I was like, it just means you're bigger and better. And they did a short run of the campaign, but I could tell that their hearts weren't in it. And so they eventually killed it. But I just remember It would have been better for Hot 97, actually. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But it it was uh, it was a lot of fun just having an opportunity to work with both those iconic uh, radio stations. You've remarked that one of your personal goals was to elevate black art as it relates to album design, so it could be on par with the rock and roll covers like Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, The Who. Um, you wanted black artist album covers to have the same level of importance, love, and respect. Do you feel that has been accomplished? We should ask them. Uh, Yeah, I do. When I think about Fear of a Black Planet, I think about Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die, Fear of a Black Planet by Public Enemy, Hello Nasty by the Beastie Boys, What's the 411, Mary J. Blige, and then certainly countless others. I, I think that that has happened. Those bands are still popular to this day, and they've had long careers. And certainly Public Enemy, the Beastie Boys, and Run DMC are all inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I I like to believe that I I contributed to some of that success by the graphics that I've done for those bands. I think that we accomplished that. And and really, the, the goal was just to remind people that 
what we're doing is important. It was the same thing that I thought about when I walked into CBS and I had to figure out a way for them to respect me as a designer, an art director, and a creative director, even when I knew deep down inside I was scared because I didn't know what I was doing. But I knew that if it was something I could figure out, I would figure it out. And if it meant I had to go home every night and I had to read books and I had to learn and I had to practice and I had to ask printers what all of these rules were that I had to learn to make sure that the design worked in a print context, I was going to do that. You worked with a lot of the biggest stars of hip-hop back in the 90s and the early 90s and still do today. And a lot of the artists from that time are still incredibly successful, incredibly popular, even more so than they were then. Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, uh, Jay-Z. Did you have a sense that they would have the longevity that they have? No. No? (laughs) You know, I tell people all the time, I look at Puff and I look at where he is today. I mean, he is a titan of industry. And I says, you know, he's just one of those guys that was driven beyond belief. And Jay-Z, obviously, is another one. They just wanted to be a success so bad, whatever that means, you know, regardless of, you know, what the product they're selling, they wanted to win beyond people's wildest dreams. And they found a way to do that. And I I feel like I've been fortunate to be along on the ride with them because it could have easily been some other artist. And I, I like to also think that I can point to moments in their careers and say, this is what my contribution was. And maybe if that wasn't there, you know, there might not have been a spike in their career at that point. So I try to, you know, pat myself on the back and take a little bit of the credit because at the end of the day, I did help to contribute. I'm one of those people working behind the curtain. You worked with all of these amazing artists and performers. You traveled the world with the Beastie Boys and Run DMC. And I read that when you got off the plane, you've said that people treated you like royalty. Yet despite all the fame around you, you've said you've just focused on the work and you only ever simply wanted your name in the liner notes. Why is that? Well, like I said, I'm I'm working behind the curtain. And as you know, the job of a designer is to execute the vision of whatever the product or the um, the person is that you are working for. It, you know, it's not, you know, an opportunity for you to shine as bright as you can. Your job is to make them shine bright. And that was something that I always had in context. I, you know, I worked at a desk. My, my job is to create a beautiful visual to enhance the package or the product, the end. That's the end of it. And then I move on to the next job. I'm not, you know, doing this so I can stand on a podium and take a bow. I mean, if something good comes from it, that's great. But the idea is you're just building a body of work. And you like to think that the most important thing is for the work to withstand the test of time so you can step back 10, 15, 20, 30 years later and go, wow, it looks like I knew what I was doing. 
you know, and I heard Spike Lee say this when people were asking him about winning an Oscar. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to let, and I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me. I'm not going to let anybody validate the work that I do. It's just about creating a body of work. And that was something that I, I, I learned from Keith Haring all those years ago. It was just make work and just keep making work and let somebody else be a critic. In addition to working with all of the performers that you have and musicians and artists, you've also worked with an amazing array of brands, Levi's, Adidas, the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. After being immersed in design for so long with with music and with artists, what is it like working with brands? Is there a big difference in the way you approach the work? Well, um, my approach is always about doing what is best for the client, whether it's it's a recording artist or a brand. But at the end of the day, the thing that I think about the most now, and, and this is a, a good example, working with Google recently. What did you do with Google? They commissioned me to design a Google Doodle to celebrate the 44th anniversary of hip hop. And so my you know, Google logo was up on the homepage for three days last year, I think. And, you know, the idea is that I am the representation of what it is they're trying to connect with when you think about a contemporary audience. They want something that is genuine and authentic. And one of the things that I I said to one of the executives, I says, the work isn't what's genuine and authentic. I am what is genuine and authentic. So when you are hiring me, you are hiring somebody that cares about what they do and they've been doing it consistently for a very long time. And those things combined with the knowledge of the audience that you're trying to communicate with together is what makes it genuine and authentic. And just sort of reminding them that I, I treat everything with the same amount of passion. I, I don't think about, you know, billable hours. If it means staying up for five straight days to get something right for Apple or Google or Levi's or Paps Blue Ribbon, whatever it is, that's the job for me. Because at the end of the day, I just want to make sure that if my name is on it, I, I can be as proud about what I'm doing today is is something that already has status because it, it's 20 or 30 years old. The work that you've done with brands seems to have influenced a body of artwork that you've done. It's a, a brilliant series that you call Trusted Brands, in which you reconnect with the classic logos of your youth. Can you talk about the origin of those pieces? You know, the idea is that these companies have already stood the test of time. They've been around, you know, in some cases for over 100 years. And all of the artwork that I'm doing now is just rooted in childhood memories. When I'm sitting in the back of my parents' station wagon and we're going across country to visit family, you know, all I'm doing is looking at logos. I'm, you know, whether it, you know, it's Sitco or Sunoco or 76 brand, You know, I got nothing else to do but just to absorb visuals while we're on the highway. And so when I said to myself, okay, I want to do a new body of work, what do I want to do? I want to connect 
everything from my life. I want to focus on something from my childhood, and then I want to use my graphic design sensibility. I want to tie in, you know, the waves from my, you know, graffiti years. And I thought, okay, what is this going to look like? And I thought, oh, I know. I'm going to do, you know, collage paintings of all my favorite logos. And so when, you know, people look at it, I want them to understand that it's a tribute to the craftsmanship of the, you know, the men and women that made these iconic images. And that's also why these things are still popular to this day. But that was the idea. It's like I, I just wanted to do a tribute to all of the things that made me, you know, smile as a kid growing up. And I was going to put a contemporary spin on it by incorporating imagery and messages from, uh, you know, the civil rights movement in some cases, you know, watching television with I Love Lucy, um, you know, like I said before, a lot of my uh, graffiti graphics as well, and put all those things together in a blender and see what it looks like. And, and that's what this series of paintings was trying to accomplish. You've said this about the body of work. At first glance, like pictures in a book or magazine, My paintings are very recognizable. Your eyes and brain tell you what you're seeing is familiar. Feelings of comfort and nostalgia take over. Pushing closer and hidden messages are revealed, raising questions about our values, consumerism, race, gender, class, and history. Say, what what kinds of questions are you asking with these paintings? One of my friends said to me, what do these things say about you as an African-American artist? And I said, well, what they say is, I'm not an African-American artist, I'm an artist. And I use the same brands as everybody else. You think the gas station gives a crap like what the color of your skin is when you're pumping gas? It's like, you know, the car doesn't know the difference, the gas doesn't know the difference. And, you know, it's people that make those distinctions. And so that's what that statement is about. It's just this idea idea that we share the same experiences regardless of where we come from and we are more alike than we are, you know, dissimilar. And I wanted to do a series that sort of reminds people of that. It's like I'm coming full circle. I, I figure this is what I would have been doing when I was a teenager if I sort of knew how to get there. So this is, you know, my homage to Jack Davis and Andy Warhol and uh, Romeo Bearden and, you know, all of the people that have informed me all along the way. And I'm also doing something that just plain old makes me happy. You said that the paintings are based on childhood memories of playing with Hot Wheels, drinking Coca-Cola and eating Captain Crunch. And I think that the work transcends as you've mentioned, race, gender, orientation, so forth, because I could have said the same thing. I could substitute Barbie for Hot Wheels, which are both made by Mattel, and I'd have the same statement. I was playing with Barbies, drinking cola, and eating Captain Crunch, just putting a lot of milk in there so that the top of my, uh, the roof of my mouth wouldn't get all cut up. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about something very current that you're doing. In March, Pabst Blue Ribbon announced that they were partnering with you to curate 
the first ever National Mural Day, which is set for May 7th in numerous cities around the country. I believe you'll be creating a mural in Austin, Texas. Uh, actually, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Oh, great. On May 7th, yeah. Okay. So, so tell us more about what National Mural Day, what your intention is for National Mural Day, what your hopes are for the future, and how you're going to go about doing this. Well, the thing that is so great, first and foremost, about Pabst Blue Ribbon is that they saw what I was doing with the Trusted Brand series, and they understood that I'm working with iconic, classic brands, and they've been around for over 170 years. They instantly fall into that category, and they're also one of the logos that I've always been really fond of. So eventually, I would have gotten to them, but the fact that they got to me first, which is, you know, is really great. So I made a painting of their classic logo but I used all of the imagery from their archives and I, I made this you know, beautiful collage painting that really celebrates not only you know, the history of their 170 years, but it also helps to tell my story as well because I, I weave in a lot of the things that are integral to my history and where I come from as well. There's imagery in there from African-American beauty shops and things like that and, and, you know, kids sort of hanging out and just weaving all of these things into the narrative as a way of, again, sort of explaining that we all, in theory, come from the same place. And so this idea of National Mural Day is really just a way of shining a light on the fact that there are all these amazing visual artists out there now making work, you know, in ways that they really never have been before. I mean, you know, why have people not been making these beautiful murals, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago? I mean, you could say that social media plays a huge role in all of this, but what you learn is that there are some really talented artists living at this time period that are making really beautiful work, and now we have a way of sharing it. So that's really all it's about, just people that are fans of work coming out and engaging with your favorite visual artists, taking pictures, sharing those things, just people sort of connecting around this idea of visual art. I understand that National Mural Day will offer resources for artists to connect with wall owners in New York City and Philadelphia, Detroit, Nashville, Denver, Charleston, Portland, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Seattle, and Atlanta. And I know that Pabst is also working with mural programs around the country, including Mural Arts Philadelphia, to commit resources to support National Mural Day regionally. How did National Mural Day even come to fruition as an idea? I, I think it was an idea that was necessary. And like everything, everything is about branding these days. And so mm. I think that it's got to be established as a thing the same way somebody said, oh, we need a name for this art form that incorporates dance and, and you know, spray painting and, and DJing and you know, all of these things come together. It needed a name. And somebody says, oh, let's call it hip-hop. And, and framing it so people can put it in context. And I think that that's what National Mural Day is. We already know that there are a lot of talented artists in America and around the world. We know that these people are all trying to have their voices heard. So let's 
put it in a context where we can frame it and, and package it so people can identify that it is a thing and that it exists. And I think that if PAPS is going to lend financial resources to making that happen, that's a great thing because you can participate and support the arts without a banner being behind you. And people will figure out, you know, who is on their side and who isn't. And I think that that's the thing that is really great about this particular initiative. And that was why I wanted to participate. So you've worked with PAPS to redesign the brand's cans, the packaging, every touch point, essentially, you have redesigned and is now launched yeah. out into the world. It's really exciting. They said that they manufactured 150 million cans. And believe me, I'm going store to store checking, taking pictures, and really just absorbing the idea that somebody could create something centered around artwork that I did, and I'm proud to have my name on it. Say, I have one last question for you. You've said that looking back on your career, that you think you've been really lucky being in the right place at the right time. And I have to push back a little bit. Surely you don't think it's all luck, do you? No, no, not at all. But I, I do believe that if I lived in, you know, North Dakota or the Midwest or somewhere, like, you know, I wouldn't have been at the epicenter of where culture was being cultivated. So when I reference being lucky, it's being born in this time, in this city, around these people. It, it's like if you were a part of the Harlem Renaissance or if you are a part of the grunge movement. You, you know, not everybody gets to participate in those things. And, you know, everybody sort of lives vicariously through a handful of people that were there. And I'm fortunate enough to be one of those people that was there. To be able to say that you were there when Run DMC started. You were there when the Beastie Boys first started. You helped to cultivate Jay-Z's career. That is not a small thing. And so to me, I do think that some of that is luck. And and for lightning to sort of keep striking again and again in the same place, I just think, you know, I'm really fortunate. And I know that talent plays a, a huge part in a lot of this as well. But I, I try to keep it all in perspective because at the end of the day, I still got to go back to the studio and solve a bunch of design problems for new projects that I hope are going to be really amazing. But until I create the work, I, you know, I don't know what it's going to look like. Well, we're really lucky that you're making it as well. Say, Adams, thank you for creating such groundbreaking work in the world. And thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you for having me. This has really been special, I have to say. And I don't know if it's okay to say this on the air, but this is a huge treat. You really made me feel like everything I've done over the years really matters. Well, it does. It does to a lot of people. You can find out more about Say Adams at sayadams.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we could do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.